Okay, y'all, turn your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 17. All right, Eugene Peterson, y'all know that name? He's a popular pastor and author. I just want you to think of everyone's pastor. He's everyone's pastor. His writings appeal to religious conservatives and religious liberals. His writings appear, appeal to Protestants and Catholics. Uh, they appeal to those that raise their hands and those that sit on their hands. They appeal to those who believe in tulip and those who believe in the daisy. He loves me. He loves me not. Uh, Peterson challenges today's views of everybody. He challenges our view of the Christian life. He challenges our view of the church. And it doesn't matter what tradition you're in. He challenges you and he challenges me. He says this. When Christian believers gather in churches, everything that can go wrong sooner or later does. Outsiders, on observing this, conclude that there's nothing to the religious business except perhaps business and bad business at that. He goes on to say, but insiders see it differently. Just as a hospital collects the sick under one roof and labels them as such, the church collects sinners. Many of the people outside the hospital are every bit as sick as those inside, but their illnesses are neither undiagnosed or disguised. It's similar with sinners outside the church. Finally, quote, so Christian churches are not as a rule model communities of good behavior. They are, rather, places where human misbehavior is brought out in the open, faced, and dealt with. Real Christianity is a real life. Real Christianity is not about being a super saint. It's about being a messed up person, being radically saved and restructured by the grace of God. Why is this important for us to know this? When Jesus says, I came not for the healthy, but for the sick, why is it important for you and I to know that? And more importantly, why is it so important and so crucial to your life and to my life to build our lives around the reality that Jesus came for the sick and not the healthy? I've got three answers for you. The last one's going to be our passage, but I've got two. One's from a song, a guy named Leonard Cohen. He has a song that goes like this. There's a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. The other comes from an interview of best-selling author Philip Yancey. You know, the 20th anniversary of that landmark book, what was it? Amazing? <laughs> I'm sorry, I got another book by Michael Horton called Putting Amazing Back into Grace, and that came to my mind. This one's called What's So Amazing About Grace? <laughs> that landmark book. Uh, he talks about the relationship between the church and the culture today. And he gives three kind of reasons for why we have the kind of relationship we do with the culture today. First one, it deals with our Christian character. Interviews show that Christians are viewed as uptight, judgmental, controlling, antagonistic. Those are the reactions of people who are used to getting their way but now feel threatened. Answer number two deals with the character of the church. I believe the church in the U.S. has lost sight of how to relate to the wider society. To borrow the words from Amy Sherman, the church responds either by fortification hunkering down among like-minded Christians or dominion, wanting to beat those secularists and get our country back. I don't see either of those approaches in the New Testament. 
even though it was written in a much more hostile environment. Lastly, he says, here's a possible solution. The more we come across as ordinary people stumbling along with the same problems and temptations, the more we lower barriers and build bridges. We're not on a pedestal. Some species of superhuman beings. For so many people inside and outside the church, the gospel no longer sounds like good news. What's the third answer? Why is it so crucial for you as an individual and us as a church to build our life around the reality that Jesus came for the sick, not the healthy? Please stand for the hearing of God's word. just heard a testimony about an older woman who was the poorest of the poor uh, living on the edge of death and how appropriate that God brings us a story this morning of another poor woman. Hear the word of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came to him, Elijah, arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. So he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, Bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, As the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I'm gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son, that we may eat it and die. And Elijah said to her, Do not fear. Go and do as you have said, but first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me, and afterward make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, The jar of flour shall not be spent, and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And she went and did as Elijah said, and she and he and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. After this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill. And his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. And she said to Elijah, What have you against me, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. And he said to her, Give me your son. And he took him from her arms and carried him up into the upper chamber where he lodged and laid him on his own bed. And he cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourn by killing her son? Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah. And the life of the child came into him again, and he revived. 
And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Oh God, we ask that you would fill us with your spirit. We ask that you would shine on the page. Oh God, we acknowledge that your speaking and your acting are the same thing. That where your word goes, you go. And so Lord, go with your word. Ride on the wings and the wind of your word. And ride powerfully and personally into our lives, into our church to this community, and we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, the author of 1 Kings is writing to who? Do you know? Jewish exiles in Babylon, 500s BC. So the exiles were the original readers of this passage. These are people that were forcibly taken prisoner by Nebuchadnezzar, leveling Jerusalem, marching them out to a foreign land and to a foreign place. So the The people that are targeted with these words are those who are believing people surrounded by an unbelieving people. That's who's being written to here. These are church people amidst skeptical people, people who don't intentionally go to church, and they have their reasons for not going to church. Some of those say church people are just weird. Church people like to circle the wagons and form their own little communities and church people are perceived as not being very friendly and kind and nice to those outside and around them. Others say church people are judgmental. They act morally superior. They're like, they're the only people that love their children and love their spouses. They're the only people that, that don't lie or abuse people. Some folks say, many unchurched people, people are just not intellectually rigorous. I mean, they base, they base their, their authority and their interpretation of reality on non-traditional sources. They don't go to reason. They don't go to experience. They go to something called revelation. How are God's people to live in such a culture? How do we live as believing people surrounded by unbelieving people how are we to live when the culture around us gets addicted to self-indulgence or what if they ban bibles or what if they pass laws that legalize things that have just happened how are you and i supposed to live as a church how are we supposed to live hebrews 12:15 which is not what we just read, gives us something to do and gives us a requirement that all of us are called to individually and as a church. In fact, it's a clear biblical requirement for what we are to do as believing people surrounded by unbelieving people. Now, there are many other calls that might be out there. There are many other requirements that might be out there, and some of them are going to be hotly debated, like how do you respond to the legalization of gay marriage? Certainly to be hotly debated, but... This one's clear in Hebrews 12, 15. This one's not debated. 
This one is a clarion call for you and me on what to do. Are you ready? Here it is. See to it that no one misses the grace of God. See to it that you, your church, and everyone you love build their lives around the grace of God, not anything else. Jeremiah, the prophet, is also writing to these folks in Babylon. He's writing to the folks that are reading this account of Elijah. And you know what he says? Man, I know you're weeping, you're devastated, you're surrounded by unbelieving people, and I know you want to know what to do, and I know you want to know what this means, and I know you want to know how to live, and so I'm going to tell you, here it is. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I've sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, hear my words. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat them. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there. Do not decrease. Seek the welfare of the city where I have placed you. Pray to the Lord for this city's welfare and you will find your welfare what are believing people to do when surrounded by unbelieving people not fortification it's not the village and it's not dominion culture wars you know what it is live an ordinary life of grace living an ordinary life of grace in the place God has placed you. Build a home. Make a home. Have ordinary relationships. Loving, growing relationships. Go about ordinary vocations and calling and work and interests and hobbies and arts and sciences and literature. Love the place God has placed you in. Love the place God has placed you in. And you know what happens? The kingdom of God advances. The kingdom of God breaks in. The kingdom of God comes down. In ordinary life, as ordinary people, the gospel runs and triumphs. When Luther was asked, hey Luther, if Jesus was going to come back tomorrow, what would you do? And they're just waiting like, you know, he's going to like go evangelize everybody he can talk to, go write the greatest work he's ever written, go do something. He says, ah, that's easy. I'd plant a tree. What is God calling you and I? What is God calling the Israelites that are here in this passage? What is God calling believing people to do when they're surrounded by unbelieving people? Be ordinary people of grace. Live ordinary lives of grace. When Jesus preached on this passage in his hometown in Luke 4, he reminded his listeners, which were his, his hometown, this is his family, he reminded them, that there were many widows in Israel during that three and a half years when God turned off the water in all of Israel. But God didn't send Elijah to Israel. 
didn't send them to the church people? Why did he do that? Because he sent them to Zarephath. He sent Elijah to Sidon, which is Jezebel's hometown. It's actually Baal's hometown. It's where Baal started into Israel. And so God sends Elijah there, not just to the unchurched and not to the unbelieving, I mean, not to the church, but he sends them, he sends them to the unchurched and the unbelieving, but not only that, to the heart of it, the center of it, the hometown of unbelief, which is Jezebel and Baal's, Baal's hometown. So when God sends Elijah there, he sends his word there, because if he sends his word there, he's sending his presence there. So God is actually showing up in the heart of darkness in all of Israel in the ancient Near East at this time. God actually goes there. He sends a prophet, which is sending his word, which is sending his presence, that he goes there. He visits a messed up widow in her misery. She's a worshiper of Baal. Why? She trusts in Baal to send the rain. We saw that last week. Everybody's looking for rain. Everybody's wanting rain. Everybody needs the rain. And she's trusting in Baal to send it. She's lived a life without rain because of her trust in Baal. She's dying. She and her son because of a life of trusting in Baal. She's gathering sticks to make her last meal for her and her son because there is no rain, because Baal can't give rain, there is no meaning, there is no life, there is no security, there is no flourishing, there is no fructification in Baal. But God sees her, he goes to her, he has mercy on her, and he makes her an ordinary person of grace. And why does he do it? What's this all about? What does he want the Israel at this time, what does he want them to see by why he went to Zarephath? What does he want the Israelites in Babylon to see about reading this account? What does he want you and me to see about this account? And the answer is found in verse 14. Why don't you take a look at it? For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent. The jug of oil shall not be empty. God's point is my grace never vanishes. There's a living point here. And the living point is is that grace never runs out. Grace never goes empty. Grace never fails. So build your life around it. So build your church around it. So build your family around it. Jesus, or God, is saying through this text, my grace is the real rain, and it's for the thirsty, and it's for the needy, and it's for the broken, and it's for the messed up. That's the kind of God I am. Build your life around that. What's the problem, though, with living an ordinary life of grace? What's the problem with that? Well, the answer is ordinary life happens, doesn't it? Look at verse 17. After this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill, and his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. Did you catch verse 19? I mean, this is just a little boy. This is a little boy actually being carried by a broken-down woman, a widow, 
the strains of a life without water, and now she's gotten some for the first time, and a short time after, maybe her strength's coming back, but she is carrying, she's carrying her child, her limp child in her arms to Elijah, and it was a desperate death. It was a slow suffocation. Do you see that? His illness was so severe, there's no breath left in him, so she was carrying vigil by his bedside. You can imagine she's watching him struggle to gain his next breath. He's straining to grab his next breath, and then his chest doesn't rise, and probably at that point, she screams, Elijah, and scoops him up in his arms, in her arms, and runs for the stairs, and Elijah hears her scream from the upstairs and runs down the stairs, and they meet at the base of the stairs. And then what she says, most of us feel, even though we never say the words, she says, verse 18, and she said to Elijah, what have you against me, O man of God? You have come, this is not a question, you have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. When ordinary life happens, we feel God is against us because of something we've done or something we've not done when there's relational conflict in our life and we have communication struggles and there's discouragement and depression, we think it's because God is against us because of something we've done or something we've not done. When there's stress and there's failures in our life and there's rejections and disapproval and there's hard times with people and circumstances and situations, we think God is against me because it's something I've done or something I've not done. And then when this happens, the ordinary life of grace turns into a struggling life of performance. And all of a sudden, it's like grace runs out. The jar of oil goes empty. And this happens in our inner person or we could call it our character and our thinking. Our thinking breaks down, our feelings break down, our desires break down, and it's now our thinking is geared around performance. Our feelings are geared around performance. They shape, our character gets shaped that way. It moves into our relationships. As now we're in a struggling life of performance in our relationships. And we project standards and keep standards, live by expectations, put expectations on people. In this way, we relate to our work, we relate to our, our difficulties and our circumstances, all in a struggling life of performance. And not believing in God doesn't help you. You might be thinking, well, good night, then if I don't believe in God, I'm safe, I can get out of this treadmill of performance. No, it doesn't help you. It just further buries us in performance. For instance, there's still a struggle with performance when ordinary life happens if you have a more Eastern thought. If you have a more Eastern thought, you kind of probably gravitate towards karma, good karma or bad karma. And so if bad things happen, it's because of a bad karma, and the karma is dependent on your performance. So if you have a good performance, you get good karma. If you have bad performance, you get a bad karma. So it's still based on a struggle of performance. And then those of us that are more naturalists, when something bad happens, we're experiencing a process called natural selection, right? Survival of the fittest. And it means survival of the fittest psychologically. So when something bad happens and you start struggling with it, your survival in your psychological emotional state is determined by whether you're fit or not. Those that have weak psychological chemical makeup don't make it. They don't move on. It's 
still based on your performance. Now here's the shockwave in the passage. It's unbelievable. Did you see it? Elijah wants to know if God's doing that too. God, did you kill her son to punish her? Verse 20, and he cried to the Lord, O Lord, my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourn by killing her son? Here's what's so important for us to know in this passage, y'all. Both the widow and Elijah do not deny her sin. The widow doesn't deny her sin. Elijah doesn't deny her sin. And both of them do not deny God's freedom to judge sin. They both assume that God is source justice and that God is the author of justice and that God is the original justice and being just perfectly, that he weighs justice perfectly. He's pure and perfect and holy, which is incomparable in his justice. He doesn't show favoritism. He weighs what's beautiful and what's good and what's ugly and evil, and he justly (laughs) judges. And he has the freedom to judge and destroy that which attacks what's good. He has the freedom to just take what's destroying, what's beautiful and good in his creation and separate it from what's good and what's beautiful and what's true. He has the power to do it and he has the, he has the righteous character to do it. And the woman and Elijah agree. He's free to judge the widow's sin. He's free to judge the boy's sin. He's free to judge Israel's sin. He's free to judge Elijah's sin. He's free to judge our sin. Cornelius Plantiga in his now classic book, Not the Way It's Supposed to Be, he said, healthy people feel guilty when they know they have done wrong just as they feel pain when they grasp the handle of a hot pan. Jesus said, I came not for the healthy, but for who? The sick. It is spiritually healthy to know you're spiritually sick. It is unhealthy to think you're healthy. So, well, you know the quote, right? Remember Dr. Hannah's quote? I never met a godly man who thought he was, but I met a lot of godly people, and a lot of ungodly people who thought they were. I've never met a godly person who thought he was, but I've let him met a lot of people who call themselves godly who aren't. How do we live an ordinary life of grace in the face of an ordinary life? This passage says start with humility. Humility doesn't trust in personal performance at all. Do you see that? Humility deep in its bones trusts in the grace of God. It's deep in its bones. It doesn't trust in its imperfect, flawed performance. It, it trusts actually in the performance of another and getting grace from another. And when a person, an ordinary person, humbly says, I'm not gonna trust in my performance, but I'm actually gonna trust in the performance of another. I'm gonna trust in the grace of God that God gives the rain and it doesn't run out. You know what happens to that person? They become a bold person, they become a relaxed person, they become an energized person, they actually become a loving person. And so the way you and I, the way we are to to live 
an ordinary life of grace and possibly an unbelieving culture is very humbling. Not trusting, not resting, not rejoicing in our personal performance because deep in our bones we know it's imperfect, it's flawed. There is no such thing as a good performance. And when we demand ordinary life to go our way, why do we demand an ordinary life to go our way? What happens when we wallow in self-pity? We demand and try to control our world around us. I mean, I had one of those weeks. Some of you all know it's just like unbelievable, but I hate Saturdays. Saturdays are like the worst days on the planet. It's always the day right before I preach, and all of a sudden things just kind of come hammering at us. I woke up with a truck broken that I just got. My truck could have been someone else's truck, but it was my truck. I woke up to a flat tire, and then I woke up to realizing that someone had hacked into our identity and had stolen hundreds of dollars from our bank account. That was my day yesterday. How was your day? Did you have a good day? When that happens, instinctively, no one has to tell me. No one has to write it out. I instinctively feel God is against me. I feel it. Even if I don't say it. It's almost like, yeah, of course. Of course that's going to happen. Saturday. God doesn't like me on Saturday. He just loves me on Sundays. When we demand an ordinary life to go our way, we actually think we deserve an ordinary life. If you think that Christians deserve to not have the legalization of gay marriage, what? That's just so wrong. If we think life should go our way, we're trusting in our own performance. When we blame God and blame others because of ordinary life not going our way, we think we have a good performance. So our good performance is in check, so it must be someone else's fault. And since God's the one that controls everything, you're at fault, God. Because deep down inside, we don't even know it, but we're trusting in our performance, and we think we have a good one, so we actually think we have something to present to God to say, It shouldn't be going this way. You're at fault. And if you want to know if you ever do that, you say, I never blame God. I'm not Forrest Gump or whoever his buddy was on the boat yelling at God in the, you know what I'm talking about, right? That movie? Okay. Lieutenant Dan. Lieutenant Dan. Yeah, Lieutenant Dan. Yes. (laughs) If you blame another person for something, you're ultimately blaming God. So if you like to blame your wife, you really should just fill in God. If you like to blame your boyfriend, you really should just fill in God. If you like to blame your circumstances and your situations, you really should just fill in God. And why? Because again, we think we have a good performance, so the fault lies with someone else's bad performance, God's or someone else's. What about those of us, though, that are like, man, I don't, I don't think that I deserve it, and I don't blame God or blame others. I beat myself up. When ordinary life doesn't go my way and things get hard and things get heavy, I'm the, I, I torture myself. 
I rerun after rerun after rerun the failure or the rejection or the words or the conversation or the conflict over and over and over in my head. Is that you? You know you have a bad performance. So what you're doing and what I do in those times is we are actually trying to atone for our bad performance. You are actually trying to atone for your own sin. We trust in our performance still. How do we live an ordinary life of grace in the face of an ordinary life that doesn't go our way? Start with humility. Start with not trusting your personal performance at all. Look at verse 21. This verse drives the commentaries crazy. Are you ready? I love it when it drives the commentaries crazy. It's always fun to say, look and see how people try to interpret it. Most commentaries won't even touch it because they don't even know what to do with it. Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, Oh, Lord, my God, let this child's life come into him again. (laughs) What is this? What is Elijah doing? What is this weird stretch? Do you know what it is? Commentaries, most of them will say, if they comment on it, they're going to say it's a special prophetic act. Okay, well, what's the special prophetic act? Crickets. Just leave it at that, and then we're comfortable and it's nice. The early church fathers, you know what they said? Well, Elijah, when he stretches over the child three times, he's doing it in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So it's a Trinitarian stretch. Fantastic. I don't see that in the text. One PCA pastor says, look, you're trying too hard. Just go with the natural meaning. What does a parent do when their child is in danger? They stretch. They stretch physically, they stretch emotionally, they stretch spiritually over their child. Take me instead. I have five kids. And Jesus says about me as a father that I'm an evil father. And he says, what evil father, when their child asks for bread, will give him a rock, right? I'm an evil father, and I have five kids. And whenever one child is in danger, I either literally physically, always emotionally stretch. Oh, God, take me instead. Elijah's weird stretch is a substitutionary stretch. Do you see that? Right there in 1 Kings. Oh, Lord, take me instead. Don't miss verse 22. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah, and the life of the child came back into him again, and he revived. Of course God listened. Of course God listened because it was a substitutionary stretch because substitution is the magic of rain always coming. Substitution is the grounds of all grace never running out and never vanishing. 
Substitution is why God sends the rain and why God causes his grace to never run out. Substitution is why grace never vanishes because substitution is the life of another for another. So in other words, what happens is is that one life in its life gives that life to another. One life in its death takes that death of another. It's an exchange. It's a replacement. It's one story being swapped for another story. It's one person's medals and victories and honors being given to someone else to become their medals and their victories and their honors. It's one person's life and power and resurrection being given to someone else as their power, their life, their resurrection. It's one person on the cross paying a penalty, receiving punishment, taking cosmic rejection in the place of someone else's penalty, someone else's punishment, someone else's rejection. This is the power of substitution. This is Elijah's stretch. How in you, how do you and I become an ordinary person of grace in an ordinary life that often doesn't go our way? How do you and I live as believing people surrounded by unbelieving people? How did this child ultimately get healed? Why did God not judge the widow's sin? Because of a better Elijah's stretch. said, oh God, take me instead. And this time, unlike Elijah, God answered the prayer. Life for a life. Death for a death. So you get grace that never, ever, 